from the Emory Career Center. This is On the Road to Happiness, where we're taking a deep dive investigation on how you find happiness, fulfillment, and justice in your future career. I'm your host, Gabriella Lewis. And this week, we're talking negotiation. Summer's on the mind, so sweet we can taste it. And when the sun comes out, our eyes change color. Different, different, different. After painstakingly applying, soul-searching, getting internships, and finally deciding what job you may want, there's a crucial step between you and your new title, the negotiation. Statistically, women oftentimes don't negotiate at all or do so at a much lower rate than their male counterparts. Society deems these women as greedy or inappropriate in comparison to these men. And in result, women across the board earn less. But beyond just women, these divides are also apparent among class and race as well. Negotiation and the lack of resources and culture surrounding it is just part of the reason why there are significant wage gaps in our country. In 2020, women earned 84% of what men earned, according to a Pew Research Center analysis of median hourly earnings of both full and part-time workers. Based on this estimate, it would take an extra 42 days of work for women to earn what men did in 2020. And beyond just that, 25% of women make less than a man doing the same exact job as them. But as aforementioned, this exists beyond just women. According to the same study, in 2015, Black Americans made 75% compared to their white counterparts. And this wage gap exists amongst almost all BIPOC demographics. And although these are just averages that lack the nuance necessary in some cases, it's a stark contrast in comparison to their white male counterparts. So, although there are dozens of factors that go into these gaps, a large part of it is the societal oppression that dictates how many folks are socialized into brokering salaries. And at the end of the day, most folks just aren't taught how to negotiate, especially those who are less privileged than others. But in this episode, we have the pleasure of talking with Michelle Fuentes, an employee of the startup 81 Cents, which provides negotiation advice and counsel to women and people of color to help them close that wage gap. My name is Michelle Fuentes. I work for the startup 81 Cents. We're a pretty small team. There's less than 10 of us. So I handle customer success and have recently started moving into the operations side of it. But first and foremost, I deal with the candidates that we get that are looking to figure out if they're being paid fairly. Can you start us a talk a little bit about, like you talked about the wage gap, what your organization, 81 Cents, does, and how you kind of find out if you're part of that wage gap? Yeah, so 81 Cents, the name I think is pretty telling. When the company was founded back in 2018, the wage gap was $1.81. So for every dollar that a man made, a woman made 81 cents. Luckily, or fortunately, or thankfully, we've got, we're getting closer to closing that gap. It's now at 82 cents. I think it's like 82.7 or something, but you know, we're getting there. The term like wage gap itself just refers to the disparity in compensation between two groups. The number that we use like in the name of the company is just based on the pay gap between men and women. But the wage gap is an intersectional kind of theory. It's not just based on one factor like gender. It also has 
to do with like race, sexual orientation, anything that might make you different from the majority. At 81 Cent, we recognize that because it is an intersectional like, concept, it's something that we have to work towards addressing on like many different fronts. So in terms of figuring out if you're part of the wage gap, I think that's an interesting question because I don't think it's really a matter of finding out whether you're a part of it as much as it is it being a question of, am I being paid fairly for my skill set and for the value that I bring? And at least from what I've seen more often than not, people that find themselves asking themselves the question and have the answer, I don't think I am, or I have no idea, those tend to be people that lie in those marginalized groups that are often underrepresented in the workplace. So I think if you ask yourself that question and you have doubt in your answer, I think it's fair to say that there's a chance that, you know, you might not be being paid fairly or you are, there is like a wage gap between what you're being paid and what the market rate is for that level of role. So can you tell us a little bit about how, if you feel like you're being not paid fairly, how you kind of um, work to get the tools necessary to remedy that, whether that be working with an organization or going onto a website, et cetera. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe some tangible resources to help with that? Yeah. So obviously working for 81 Science, I would say, you know, you should definitely go to our website. We have a library uh, with a bunch of like resources that links to, to other articles and to other like websites that have more information on it. They also have some, we have some like templates and scripts to use for, you know, when you're negotiating an offer and things like that. I mean, it's always a good idea to check out like crowdsourced sites, Glassdoor or Payscale, things like that. But it's also a good idea to reach out to your own network if you can, or people that are in similar roles and kind of just reaching out to to see what their thoughts are on it. I mean, even though pay, the conversation about what you're being paid is super uncomfortable, it's um, it's still a really important one. And I think that by starting to have these conversations, I think it'll start to become normalized and it'll help in you know, having this pay transparency and like closing that gap. So absolutely. And, and so can you tell us a little bit, you know, part of this episode is about negotiation and can you explain to us how negotiation fits into the wage gap? And, you know, you've touched on this a little bit, but, you know, part of the reason that women and people of color are paid less historically and have, you know, continued institutionally to be oppressed with this is is there's, uh, you know, not as much of a culture of negotiation. Can you explain to us why that is and kind of how that can be continued to be remedied? Yeah. Um, so that's always an interesting thought, like on why women and BIPOC individuals are less likely to negotiate. And there have been studies conducted on it with evidence supporting the idea that they're less likely to negotiate. um, They don't negotiate as often or that they have like a fear of any sort of repercussions. And obviously like a big part of that boils down to societal conditioning, you know, looking at like social role theory, where women are less likely to initiate negotiations and they have lower expectations about the success of these conversations. And then kind of along those same lines, there's a sense of imposter syndrome, which I think is something that a lot of people are familiar with, this fear of being exposed as a fraud because you're doubting your own accomplishments and your abilities. 
And um, this is something that's super prevalent among people that are underrepresented underrepresented in the workforce. And again, that tends to be women and BIPOC individuals. Um, Just an interesting tidbit for you. The imposter syndrome was actually first introduced in an article titled The Imposter Phenomena in High Achieving Women in 1978, which I think is really telling that that's where it started from. So it's kind of like, this is something that has been studied for like decades and, you know, it, it is a real thing, but that's why it's important to always reflect on whether you think you're being paid fairly. So that's a big thing that you should keep in mind going into negotiations or even like when you receive a new offer or when it comes to like a performance review, you should ask yourself like, do I think that this is reflective of my work, of my responsibilities, of all of this? And if the answer is no, or I'm not sure, I think that's that's kind of indicative of the fact that maybe you aren't being paid fairly. So going into these negotiations, it's always a good idea to come up with a minimum number for yourself, like a walkaway point. So it's like, if you cannot agree to a compensation package that is minimum at this level, that's when you should know, like, I'm worth more than this. And I think I should walk away because oftentimes you'll make the most, um, you'll get more of like a pay increase switching from jobs like totally different companies rather than staying within a company. And if you do see like a large pay increase within the same company, more often than not, it means that maybe you were underpaid in the role previous to that. So that's why I think it's a good idea to to kind of figure out what that walk away number is. And it's also important to realize that it's looking at compensation. You should be looking at the entire package. I think a lot of us, tend to think that salary is the only thing that's important. And there have been there's been research to suggest that like part of the reason that it looks like women are less likely to negotiate is because they don't see it as an opportunity to negotiate, whereas men have this mindset that anything can be negotiated. So even if a recruiter says like this base salary is fixed, men see other opportunities and have that mindset of like, well, let me keep asking. So, you know, you could always negotiate like a bonus, equity, PTO, like stipends for wellness uh, education. Those are all things to keep in mind when thinking of a compensation package. And I think it's a good idea to kind of come up with different, almost like scenarios or packages that you would be willing to accept. Um, before going into that negotiation. So if your total amount, throwing out a number here is 100 and you say, well, right now, like salary and like, you know, cash compensation is important to me. Well, then maybe I want 70% of that to be allocated towards base. And then the other 30, I wouldn't mind like dispersing among like a bonus, equity, things like that. But if the recruiter says the band for that role is pretty fixed, then kind of being able to like, work your kind of tweak your numbers to have it. So if it's like, well, if that means 65 has to be this, then let's allocate that other amount to, I don't know, PTO is a good one. If you're not like at a startup, usually you get like a set number of days. So kind of figuring out what that would be worth, things like that. And that brings me to the pay bands. Something that a lot of people don't know is that for a lot of roles, 
at least at bigger companies like bank companies, there are pay bands for levels. So if a role is like an L1 level one role, then there's like a band of compensation that's allocated to that amount. And for bigger companies, oftentimes I feel like it's easier to use crowdsource data like Payscale and Glassdoor to kind of figure out what that is. Um, but for some smaller companies like startups, that's where it gets a little bit trickier because some of these companies that are newer maybe haven't developed these policies in place yet. So in certain uh, states, California being one of them, it is okay to actually just ask the recruiter like flat out, what is the salary band that's being allocated for this role or for this level role? And um, at least in California, I can tell you that they are legally like obligated to let you know what that is. So if you're in a state, I think you should do research on this, that is obligated to do so. I think that's something that you should always ask about and try to refrain from giving a number first. At least personally, that's my philosophy on it. And if you are going to give a number first, just remember that the number that you give, the bottom part of that range should always be higher than your your minimum walkaway number. Because uh, recruiters expect that you're going to negotiate, even if it's like the slightest bit. So don't anchor yourself lower. Something a lot of people don't know is that most states, or not most, I think like a decent amount of them have a uh, salary history ban in place. So you're not uh, required to disclose how much it is that you make. For a couple of states, it's actually illegal for them to even ask. So I think it's a good thing to do to kind of just, depending on where you live, look up what the state laws are for that. and. Something that I've started getting into the habit of doing, which I know um, isn't exactly bulletproof, but Colorado actually has introduced a new law, Equal Pay for Equal Work Act, where the company or employer is obligated to list the compensation um, like practices and the range on the job description itself. So um, sometimes if I'm like looking at roles that are for jobs like in Los Angeles. If there's a similar role that's been posted in Colorado, sometimes I'll just like take a look. And, you know, obviously there's cost of living differences. So you might have to factor that in, but it's kind of just like, you know, taking a look. Like if you live in San Francisco and you think that the minimum amount that you're going to give is is similar to like the pay band that is in like this Colorado city, you could probably increase that to account for cost of living. So kind of just being mindful of, you know, what information to disclose and what information to try to find through weird avenues, I guess, like, you know, Colorado job postings, things like that. And that kind of also brings me to the point of trying not to disclose your current compensation, especially if you're unsure if you are being paid fairly because you don't want the recruiter or hiring manager to think, oh, if this is what you're being paid now, let's anchor the pay and like save some amount of money on X, Y, and Z. I mean, the fact of the matter is that the company has put time and money and effort into like sourcing you and like vetting you and getting everything up to this point. So the hiring manager wants the job to the position to be filled and your recruiter, you know, wants to make that happen. So even if you feel like you don't have much leverage, just I think it's important to remember that all of this has led up to them wanting you. So you really do have the ball in your court. Something that I think a lot of people think is weird and will 
and will kind of overlook is just practicing out loud. It actually really helps. There have been studies that have shown that this really does help you prepare and kind of like work through part of that imposter syndrome and things like that. And specifically practicing with somebody that looks different than you. I mean, I know this was a lot more relevant back when we were in office. It was more often than not the person across the table from you that you were negotiating with just wouldn't look like you as like personally as a woman and a person of color, things like that. So it's just like having that conversation and practicing with, I guess for me, like a white male. It is uncomfortable, but since it's likely that the person that you're negotiating with won't look like you and you're most comfortable negotiating with people that look like you, psychology, it is something that you should try to do if you can. Can you explain to us a little bit like when are appropriate times to negotiate, whether it be a job you're you know applying for, getting, or a job that you already have? Can you explain to us? I think that's something that I'm like kind of scared of. Like, when do I get to do that? So of course, um, whenever you have a job offer, that's always like a perfect time to negotiate. And another time that people I think are less likely to realize is a good time or an appropriate time is like during performance reviews or like um, like a yearly review. I mean, I think that if you're seeking like a raise or want to get a promotion, this is something that you should kind of have an informal talk with, with your manager before then, because come review time, they've kind of already um, worked out what these promotions or what the amount allocated is going to be. So if it's coming around that time, then I would suggest having an informal just meeting with them, letting them know that, hey, like I'm looking to move up to this, this, and this. What are some things that I can do? Kind of just plant the seed in their mind. And then when it does come time to, you know, that performance review, you should have an idea of what it is that you're looking for, you know, based on market research and talking to friends and everything. And just um, also have a list of like your accomplishments. Just have evidence to back that up saying, you know, I increased you know, this metric by this much and did this, this, and this, like, it's pretty hard to, to say, no, you're going to stay the same if you're coming with all of these like facts and numbers and things like that. So um, I think that's another major time that's appropriate. And then another thing is if you feel like your responsibilities have like really like ramped up and you've taken on a lot and maybe it isn't like the yearly review time, like it's six months past that. I think it's also okay to like try to set up a meeting with your manager or someone above you, or even just like a colleague and be like, Hey, do you want to like walk through some ways that, you know, I can kind of formulate this discussion to bring it up to someone to maybe figure out a time to meet up and see like what the requirements are to get to the next level. Like what, what separates you from like the level above you? Like what, what are those differences there? And that way by having this conversation and keeping it in mind, it'll one show the other person or your hiring manager, whomever, that you're interested in moving positions in the company. You'd be surprised, but sometimes people are like, oh, I just didn't know that they were interested in moving over, even though it seems like it's common sense. But also it's just, um, it's good to, it's also a good way to like build that relationship with them and having someone in your corner. So I think those are the three pretty big ones. So it's new offer, 
um, like yearly performance review and whenever you feel like your responsibility has just, you know, really increased. So, you know, not everyone falls into this wage gap. You know, there's plenty of people with an incredible amount of privilege, um, you know, myself included, even as a woman, who will never probably have to really think about this kind of underpaid um, element. And, you know, we'll be able to kind of go into things with, you know, a level of non-imposter syndrome that a lot of people deal with institutionally. So can you tell us, how do you advocate for others in the job? Is there is there ways that you can look out for your teammates, that you can look out for your friends, look out for those who don't have as much privilege as you to make sure that they are being justly compensated and that they're not being taken advantage of in the system that really deals with, you know, inequity in the workplace? Yeah, so that is a really tough topic because it is a systemic issue. It's something like you said, it's just, it's an institutionalized issue. So it's like, you can try and try, but obviously it won't fix everything. A big thing which is uncomfortable is just being honest in terms of, I mean, if you don't want to share exact numbers, that's fine, but maybe even just like letting them know, like this is sort of the way my compensation package is structured. If they're feeling like they're being lowballed. Another thing is just amplifying their voices if they have concerns that they want to take up to someone. I think just letting them know that you're on their side, that you support them, that you're able to go to bat for them if needed really makes a big difference in terms of just like confidence in the workplace. And also like employee resource groups. Um, Those are starting to become a bigger and bigger thing in the workplace, like learning and development inclusion, all of this, there are a lot more groups that are starting to to pop up and become pretty big parts of companies' culture and their mission. So I think getting involved with that too would help. You know, if even if the employee resource group is tailored to like a group of Latinx people, even if you find that that's not exactly the group that you identify with, like still going there, still supporting And just being present for meetings like that will make a big difference in terms of kind of like changing up the mindset that there is in the workplace that can kind of help, I don't know, get the conversation started and start making like these minor changes and hopefully, you know, work its way up. Well, thank you, Ms. Fuentes, so much for being here and giving us not only, you know, a a historical background of what the wage gap is, but also how you negotiate, whether you're, you know, part of that wage gap or not. And then also just telling us about 81 cents. And like you said earlier, there's a lot of information on your website about, you know, tips and tricks for these kind of things. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. So to reiterate, negotiation is a vital, tangible tool to make sure you're being compensated fairly in a job. And like we've discussed throughout this podcast, being fulfilled and happy in a job means being valued properly. But the societal conditioning means that underrepresented groups don't have as many opportunities to negotiate, which leads to our wage gap. As Ms. Fuentes said, negotiation is important for everyone. So here are some tips to remember. First, Crowdsource sites like Glassdoor and Payscale, as well as your own network, to learn about average salaries for roles you're going after or being offered. Second, establish a walkaway number for yourself. Know when you're going to walk away and never settle for less than that number. Third, look at the entire package. Salary is just part of the offer. So if the salary is fixed, there may be another opportunity to negotiate things like equity, PTO, stipends, and bonuses. 
come up with different packages before the negotiation that you'd be willing to accept. Fourth, continue to do your research. Learn more about pay bans and for levels at companies you're applying to. And in many states, you can ask recruiters what these pay bans entail. So do more research about not only your state's laws on salary transparency, but also what places you're applying to may offer. Fifth, be choosy about what you want to share. Ms. Fuentes suggests never letting on how much you're being paid currently. Seventh, practice. Ms. Fuentes also suggested practicing negotiation before you walk into the room. She also explained that it's important to practice with someone who may not look like you and in reality will be negotiating against you. Seventh, and most importantly, believe in yourself. The organization that you're applying to has put in resources and time to get you to be part of their team. So make sure you know that and make sure you know your worth. I know all these tips are a lot to swallow and they just scratch the surface of how to negotiate and acknowledge where the pay gap manifests. So for more information, check out 81 Cents' website for scripts, resources, and mentors on how to negotiate. On the Road to Happiness is brought to you by the Emory Career Center, produced by Frank March and hosted by me, Gabriella Lewis. Intro music by Emory student Willa Barnett.